Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. Today I'm joined by Robert Johnston, Managing Director over Energy, Climate and Resources at the Eurasia Group, a political risk consultancy. Today we're going to talk about the upcoming US election. While many consider energy and natural resource policies second-tier issues, this is going to be one of the most consequential elections for businesses in this sector, both in the US but also internationally, given the stark differences between the two platforms. Robert, thanks for joining us. Paul, it's great to catch up with you. Thanks for having me. So I know, obviously, your organization has spent a lot of time thinking about this. I I wanted to start off and get a, I guess, a a precy from you of the last three and a half years of the Trump administration's policies towards energy and and natural resources in general. Yeah, it's been been quite an important part of the Trump administration agenda, especially their foreign policy agenda, but also in their relationship with Republicans in Congress and with key Republican governors. Just to think about a few things, obviously the proposed uh, and planned withdrawal from the Paris Agreement is the most striking contrast with the Obama administration, but also the repeal of you know fuel efficiency standards, um, methane regulations, uh, other environmental programs around pipelining, permitting have, have gotten a lot of attention as well. But, but Trump has really built uh, on the LNG and crude export story that really began under Obama, of course, when he when he lifted uh, the the bans on exports of U.S. LNG and crude. But Trump really made that um, a centerpiece of his foreign policy, uh, the idea of U.S. energy dominance. I think maybe uh, Obama and Bush were focused, like other U.S. presidents, on energy independence. But Trump really pivoted more to energy dominance, uh, an idea that you should not constrain domestic oil and gas production with what he feels is excessive environmental or climate regulation. And in fact, you know, the U.S. should be the supplier of choice uh, globally. And the more oil and gas um, exports the U.S. produces, the more leverage it will have both with allies like Japan and Europe, uh, but also uh, with adversaries like uh, Iran, Russia, uh, China, Venezuela, and others. So he's been a very active promoter of U.S. crude uh, and LNG exports. Now, that, of course, takes us to the, the price war that happened this year with COVID, the big price sell-off and, and the, the, the short-lived uh, OPEC price war uh, with the Russians. Um, and his diplomacy in April, I think, was really an effort to restore U.S. energy dominance, to keep U.S. crude exports and shale production going uh, by getting the Saudis and Russians to um, you know, reduce their production. Uh, and, and obviously, that's something that has been really really probably tells you how important the oil and gas sector is to Trump, both in his foreign policy, but also in his relationships with governors and, and congressmen from you know key states like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Alaska, and others that are a key part of the Republican coalition. So it's certainly been a busy four years in the energy front with Trump. So I guess characterized by deregulation, as well as supporting hydrocarbon production, transportation, particularly exports, and, and tying that to foreign policy. Um, staying on the domestic side, uh, how do the two platforms differ on oil and gas production and exports, and and how sig- how important is that to their two constituencies? I think it's become probably the, the upstream side fracking, uh, to a lesser extent, offshore production, Alaska, and, and pipelines have, have become very symbolic. I think to both parties. Uh, I think for Democrats. 
especially to the progressive side of, of the party, which is, I'm sure is something we'll talk about a lot today. They've taken very strong stands against fracking, against offshore oil development, against drilling Alaska, uh, and against approving pipelines like uh, Dakota Access and Keystone XL. And, now, and those positions were really central uh, for primary candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. But Biden um, seems less focused on those kinds of restrictions on the upstream. He is talking about uh, no more drilling on federal lands. Uh, and, you know, that's about somewhere between 8 and 10% of U.S. crude oil production in states like Wyoming, uh, Colorado, Montana, Utah. But it doesn't really account for places like the Permian uh, and Eagle Fur to the same extent, which are mostly on private lands. But still, that would be a pretty big shift uh, if Biden does fall through on that. Now, of course, Trump. When he looks at fracking, when he looks at uh, Alaska, the deep water, uh, and those pipelines, it's all been about, about job creation, about energy dominance, about really mobilizing, um, you know, highly paid blue collar jobs in, in key, mostly Republican, but 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 some so called purple states with you know Republicans and Democrats uh, going back and forth, like Colorado and Pennsylvania. So I think he's really going to emphasize in those states including those so-called purple states like Colorado and Pennsylvania, West Virginia, swing states, that, that he's a better bet in terms of preserving oil and gas and fossil fuel jobs. And, and a key part of that will be his willingness to op- continue to open up the maximum amount of land um, and offshore for, for production. So much so, in fact, Paul, that as you know, based on where the market has been the last few years, it's not like interest in, in areas like Alaska has been that high. Uh, and yet for Trump, it's still something he keeps coming back to because it's consistent with this sort of very supply-driven view of of what the oil and gas sector should look like. Mm. I guess it doesn't sound like there's too much of a stark difference between the two platforms, um, perhaps compared to what it would have been with a, a Warren administration or a Sanders administration. Uh, mainly the differences are around, I guess, willingness to explore environmentally sensitive areas, um, potentially some pipeline projects. Is that a fair statement? Well, I think you're right that there's less difference between Biden and Trump than there would have been between Warren or Sanders and Trump. But that said, there are still there are still some important differences. I think on the supply side, you're right that other than the restriction on drilling on federal lands that Biden wants, it's probably not going to be his main focus. But when you look at the rest of the sort of energy value chain, including midstream, including uh, you know downstream industries, um, including environmental regulation, there's going to be pretty significant differences, and, and including foreign policy as well. So. I think that's right as far as the, the upstream picture goes, but but when you look at the demand side and look at the role of, of climate policy in particular, that's where the differences differences really uh, stand out. I'm sure that's something we can uh, we can discuss here for your listeners. Yes, I guess the second main area of domestic policy is around power generation and support for energy transition. This seems an area of stark difference between the two um, political platforms and policy. Um, can you give us some insight into into the differences there? Yeah, I mean the, the national clean energy standard that that Biden is proposing to have um, you know emissions free power generation um, by twenty thirty five clean energy standard uh, is quite aggressive. It's uh, Obviously, more aggressive than Trump, um, but even but even more so aggressive than Obama's clean power plan, 
which was basically looking at you know 30 to 35% cuts in GHG reductions by 2030. This is talking about you know 100% um, clean energy by 2035. Now, this is for the electric power sector, and this isn't 100% renewables, right? This is 100% zero emissions, net zero emissions, or 100% or, or clean energy. So that does include nuclear. It does include uh, carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, so that so that does create some scope to to keep you know nuclear and natural gas uh, in the game here, but it's estimated that it would still probably be around eighty to ninety percent um, renewables. So a pretty dramatic shift uh, from renewables, which are you know less than twenty percent uh, of generation today. So that that's a, a very strong contrast, not just with Trump, but but even even with Obama's clean power plan. And there's a lot of interesting detail here in terms of how Biden's team, this unity task force that, that took all the sort of Democrat primary candidates and, and got them together to work on, on, on key parts of the platform like energy and climate, how they, they set out to create a policy that they want to become legislation uh, and, and to move it through Congress uh, and, and have the strength of law behind it rather than um, you know, a regulatory executive action, which both Obama and Trump issued on various energy files. But frequently runs into challenges in the courts uh, or with the states. So Biden will, we think, push the national clean energy standard as one of his main priorities in, in 2021 if he does win. And the question is, will the votes be there in the Senate? Uh, we think the Democrats probably will take back the Senate, but not necessarily the 60 votes to get to a, um, to a you know, and the filibuster. But it may also be the Democrats vote to change some of these filibuster rules so that you can get uh, more legislation passed with a simple majority. We've seen President Obama talk about that. We've seen uh, Kamala Harris talk about that. So I think that's something to watch for as well. I still think that a national clean energy standard that's pushing for 100% net zero emissions, that's sharply, while really eliminating coal and, and really reducing nuclear and natural gas, is going to have a lot of political pushback from Republicans. Uh, and from states in the U.S. that are not uh, tied into FERC as much as they are to their local, um, you know, regulated utilities, such as in the southeast and in uh, the, the Rocky Mountain area in the west. Um, but there'll also be market forces, right? You have very low-cost natural gas, which is very competitive with renewables, um, even though renewables costs have come down. Uh, and you also have, or you're going to have, I should say, potentially a lot of stranded assets and stranded costs, right? natural gas plants that have been built in the last 10 years that were built to run 35 to 40 years that, that might be forced to retire earlier, you know, how are those costs going to be paid for? And, and you know, do we have the transmission in place? So, so it's a very ambitious plan. We think it probably will be diluted somewhat, but it's certainly uh, going to be a, a step change from, from where Trump has been and even from where Obama has been on, on climate policy for the U.S. electric power sector. Yes, it is an ambitious plan, I, I, you know, and there are questions as to whether the market or even technology can support. Um, it's certainly, I guess, less um, aggressive than some of the opponents in the primary. Um, is this a case of, um, you know, there's expectations that whatever the plan, it will get watered down by the legislature? Yeah, it's a great question because other candidates were talking about 100% renewables by 2030, the so-called Green New Deal. So, so Biden's plan is a bit of a moderation from that, but but it stands in contrast to big electric utilities like the Duke Energies and Dominion Energies that have these net zero emissions goals, but more for like twenty forty five or twenty fifty, which I think is is partially about 
the time you're going to need to expand the transmission to accommodate more renewables, partially about you know economically retiring some of those natural gas plants, uh, and just a more gradual transition in line with markets. Well, I was just going to say one key unknown here is of a carbon price, right? What kind of carbon price behind this? Is it going to be more of a cap and trade model? You know, uh, how much discretion will states have? How much will FERC's power be expanded here, especially over over non-RTO states? So there are definitely a lot of unknowns. I was going to ask whether there was going to be any carbon pricing scheme like we see in Europe. Um, do either platform have any specific policies around that? No, no. In fact, uh, they're being pretty vague about that. So I think they know that that's um, based on recent U.S. political history, a, a tricky issue for voters, especially independent voters and, and obviously um, you know, Republican voters as well. So I think the idea is we, you set the standard, um, you, you give the targets to the states and you give the states a little bit more discretion on how they want to get there. Um, is it a carbon price? Is it you know a renewable energy standard? Is it going to be some kind of subsidies? What, what, what policy mix is going to be right? I think that's where there's going to be some negotiation, but they're not explicitly tying it to, you know, like Canada has or, or Europe has, you know, or, or even California, a specific carbon price that's going to rise over time or set in an auction. They haven't gotten to that yet. And I think they're going to have a, a broader range of policies to allow more flexibility at the state level to implement this plan. I was going to say that that plan as described sounds a, a an existential threat to the dominant um, or at least incumbent utilities in the U.S. I assume there's significant pushback. Yes, and, and not just from them, right? So, so I think the electric utilities, for in most parts of the U.S., have been in a decade-long transition towards lower carbon fuel sources, which, depending on the region, is basically a mixture of natural gas and wind. Um, and, and that, that has lowered the carbon footprint of the sector. And as we mentioned, I think most of the utilities are moving towards net zero emissions by say 2050, but you're right that if, if the Biden plan accelerates that timetable, you know, in, in the coal is really pushed out by cheap shale gas and by market forces, uh, sort of a regulatory effort to push this out, um, natural gas out over a, you know, 14, 15 year timetable would be pushed back from utilities. Uh, particularly in those regulated state markets, um, in the parts of the Midwest, parts of the Rockies, um, parts of the Southeast, where they want, they want to, you know, manage costs as well, right? That it's not just the utilities, but also their big industrial customers. And interestingly, I'll be curious to see how, um, unionized workers, uh, and how, um, sort of consumer oriented groups look at this plan as well, because again, Many of those groups will support the climate agenda, but also be very sensitive to cost, right? We know that some some uh, elements of manufacturing can be very sensitive to change in electricity cost. Uh, we know that um, you know minority groups or, or lower income groups are going to be sensitive to change in electricity cost, and and some of those are important constituencies for Biden as well and for Democrats in the Hill. So, how how these costs get allocated, Paul, I think is a really interesting question. As you know, you you have taxpayers and ratepayers, but ultimately the same person, right? Mm. <laughs> so. The, the question of um, what shows up in utility bill, what gets buried in a in a budget legislation moving through Congress, what's explicit, uh, what's what's implicit. I think Republicans, especially in a very closely divided Senate, where it may even be fifty fifty or fifty one forty nine for Democrats, will look very closely at these questions of cost and what the burdens are on various groups. Certainly, the utilities, as you mentioned, um, and for some, it, with, with you know 
big stranded costs around legacy fossil fuel assets, it could be a problem. Um, but also for other groups, the large industrial consumers who are price sensitive, um, various consumer groups and, and, uh, and, and workers as well. Yes. Um, I guess what I find fascinating, and we've commented on the podcast in the past, is that you know energy transition doesn't necessarily have to follow the same channels and, and um, pathways that I guess um, generation has in the past, you know, with distributed generation, um, with lower cost renewables closer to sources. And there's, a, you know, that will set up an interesting dynamic as to whether taxpayers want to pay for legacy assets, um, you know, and, and, and where does that liability sit? No, that's a great question. And, and, and to be clear, I think the technology pathways that Biden is describing are, are very credible and plausible. Uh, and I think that you mentioned distributed generation, um, especially to integrate more solar. There's going to be a lot of demand side, the energy efficiency spending as well. Um, and, and, and the cost of wind and solar have come down a lot. There'll be a big push on hydrogen. Um, there'll be a big push on utility scale storage. The, the question really is the timing and who pays, Paul, as you suggested, right? And, that, and that's where um, you're right. I mean, a lot of rate payers will not want to pay for the stranded costs. But then you're looking at bankruptcies for the utilities. Can you look at some kind of so-called good bank, bad bank utility strategy like the Germans did, right? That they basically split their utilities into, you know, kind of clean energy oriented new co and, and sort of fossil fuel stranded asset old co for some of the big European utilities. And that model worked out okay. Uh, certainly not perfect. But those are the questions that will have to be answered is, is who does absorb those costs, the transition costs, and that, that includes the stranded assets, uh, potentially stranded workers. Biden has to make it clear that he supports a just transition where they, they don't just abandon you know, coal workers or utility workers are displaced by this. And then, of course, the, the you know, bondholders and shareholders and, and uh, you know, those investing in these companies as well. So um, there'll be a lot of disruption here. Mm -hmm. A lot of interest in, in how those costs get allocated and risk get managed. I guess we've covered the Biden administration. Do the, does the Trump administration have any specific policies around um, supporting energy transition or uh, uh, renewables, uh, a greener power generation plan in general? Uh, you know, they, they've certainly looked at and talked at, in this first year or two more about going back to the kind of Bush era clean coal, uh, future gen type projects. Honestly, never really got too far off the ground. There, there were some interesting things at, at DOE uh, from an R&D perspective, but, but didn't really get the kind of commercial push. I think that um, if you look at you know Secretary Briette or uh, Secretary Pompeo and the other leaders on sort of Trump's energy policy, um, it's really been about natural gas. And, and they, cert they certainly acknowledge a growing role for renewables, but they rarely mention renewables without mentioning that you need natural gas to manage the intermittency of, of renewables and that, you know, the U.S. competitive advantage is really in all of the above, but with natural gas being a being a um, strategic part of that. So that so they haven't had a kind of push the way that, you know, Obama or even Bush did on 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 wind and solar. Uh, if anything, it's been uh, haggling with Democrats on the Hill over extending kind of legacy production tax credits. Mm. Which I guess moves us on to the third part of or domestic policy um, really focused on transportation and fuels um, whether that's some legacy policies like the renewable fuel standard and perhaps you could give us a, a few minutes on, on what that is um, but also moving on to um, new energy vehicles um, you know what are the major um, 
platform's policies in this area? Yeah, so on, on renewable fuel, uh, fuel standard, essentially that's a, a, a program that is intended, is passed the Bush administration. It was intended to uh, mandate blending ethanol uh, into the gasoline pool. Uh, and, and, you know, we're now 15 years into that program and it's starting to hit maturity, meaning that, you know, the maximum amount of volume of ethanol that the gasoline pool can absorb is getting pretty close to the limit. Um, so there's been a question of, does that mean it's time to sort of unwind this ethanol mandate? Should it be expanded? Uh, in other words, force automakers and to, to develop engines that can accommodate more ethanol? Should the focus shift more towards biodiesel? Should it s- switch more towards even cleaner forms of ethanol, so-called cellulosic ethanol, which is made from agricultural waste, not, not corn? And then all those questions are really being very politically sensitive because, uh, as we know, ethanol has been very popular in the Midwestern states like Wisconsin and Iowa that are definitely battleground states uh, in this campaign as they've been in, in prior campaigns. So Trump has basically, his policy has been to try to balance the interests of the refiners uh, who supported him but but oppose expansion of, of the ethanol mandate and actually favor exempting smaller refiners from the program. Uh, with balancing his his need to assuage farmers who voted for him in in 2016, but also have been uh, hurt by some of his trade policies, so he, he's ultimately um, recently backed uh, a little bit more uh, the farmer side in terms of easing some of these exemptions for small refiners, uh, and I think he's he's open in this area to doing a little bit more uh, with biodiesel and with um, you know new forms of, of clean energy from from agriculture. Biden, I think, would go further. I think Biden um, would say that the, the renewable fuel standard played its role and it should be kind of held in its current form. But, uh, you know, there should be a, a, a focus potentially on looking at uh, a shift from corn-based biofuels uh, towards more advanced biofuels. Um, that could include biodiesel, uh, especially biodiesel that comes from uh, things like waste vegetable oil and cooking oil. Uh, new feedstocks. And I think there's also going to be a very strong emphasis there on potentially looking at a California style um, low carbon fuel standard, right? Where you basically mandate that rather than uh, a target to blend ethanol, the new target is essentially uh, the GHG intensity of a gallon of, of fuel. And that you would set a target like California has to progressively lower that target uh, over time, which would force the refiners. Uh, to, to, to either buy offsets or to use more clean fuel uh, and to find other ways to, to, to manage that, that GHG intensity. And by the way, that could include using less GHG intensive crude oil, uh, which could be bad for barrels from places like Venezuela and Canada. So there's a lot happening in this space. Democrats are not necessarily lined up behind ethanol. Some of them think that the climate benefits are not that great when you look at a life cycle basis. But there is some more support on the Biden side for evolving to this low carbon fuel standard idea and toward, towards more of the advanced biofuels and, and away from corn ethanol. Not eliminating the corn ethanol program, the RFS, but, but basically not expanding it either. Right. Uh, what about electric vehicles? Are there any uh, specific policies or differences between the two administrations on that front? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Trump is going to really not do a whole lot here. Um, the only reason we think Trump might be interested in electric vehicles is if he sees it as a front in the war, the trade war and technology war with China, 
right? That, you know, the, the extent that U.S. electric vehicle makers are, are looking at factories in China uh, or, or looking at seeing technology transfer to China, that is something that could catch his radar screen. Whereas Biden, frankly, um, new energy vehicles, electric vehicles would, would be the foundation of, of his energy policy, really, alongside the, the uh, National Clean Energy Standard, right? You'd be looking at a new cash or clunkers program. Um, you'd be looking at, you know, a lot more public investment in, in electric vehicle charging infrastructure, tighter fuel efficiency standards, uh, probably new mandates to electrify buses uh, and rail and, and uh, other heavy, heavy, heavy transportation. And probably uh, a, a renewed push for hydrogen uh, as well. So I would expect pretty aggressive action from Biden on that, and a, a very strong can- contrast uh, between the candidates in this area, uh, much like there is in climate policy more broadly. Yes, um, I guess now moving to the international policy side, first and foremost amongst the Trump administration's policies has been, I get decoupling from China, and while energy and natural resources um, trade hasn't actually been one of the the causes of friction between the two countries. They've certainly been, trade policy has certainly been used as a tool to um, push um, governmental aims. Um, Whether that's, you know, affected the agri-markets, we've seen that in steel. What are the um, Biden administration's stated policies towards China? Do we know whether they'll be removing tariffs um, what do you see there? That's probably the, the most important question we're getting for our clients, not just in the energy sector, but, but more broadly, you know, those following global geopolitics and markets. Um, I think Biden's policy will be somewhat different than Trump's, but, but, but not a return to kind of the strategic economic dialogue that, that Bush and, and Obama had, where engagement with China, first bringing China to WTO, and then Obama's work to coordinate with China on climate on uh, Iran, uh, created more of an atmosphere of, of dialogue and, and cooperation. I think it would be difficult for Biden to go back to that. And I think the, the U.S. public, the U.S. businesses, U.S. national security establishment, Silicon Valley are all, are all now more in favor of a confrontational approach with China. Uh, and I think Biden would look to push back, as Trump has, on, on China's economic practices on some of their policies in in, in 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 their near abroad, right? The Hong Kong issues, the South China Sea and Taiwan issues, uh, on human rights, and on all the geotechnology issues around intellectual property, around access to the, the Chinese market for, for U.S. IT firms, uh, around Huawei, 5G, uh, artificial intelligence. But I think, I think the means by which Biden does that would be less about unilateral tariffs, to answer your question, and more about trying to get back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership type structures. Probably not the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because I think the politics around that have changed a lot in the Trump era, but more the idea and spirit of working with the Japanese, the Koreans, the Canadians, the Australians, the Indians, the Europeans, to, to try to create more of a unified front against China on some of those issues. Now, it was hard. Trump did try to do that to some extent, but he also was had his own sort of bilateral skirmishes with countries like Canada on aluminum and USMCA, with the Europeans on auto parts, uh, with, with, with J- Japanese and Koreans on agriculture. Um, so, so it was hard to kind of create a kind of counter China coalition. Biden, I think, will, will, will try to do this more through a multilateral pathway versus a unilateral kind of tariff confrontation the way that, that Trump has done. Will that work? Time will tell. But I, I think it would be a shift in sort of tactics, but not necessarily in strategy. Mm. 
I guess one of the um, key tools that has been used in the trade wars has been um, U.S. agricultural output. Um, is that still a viable tool, or have the Chinese simply switched to buying from other producing countries? You know, Brazil, for example. No, I think I think agriculture will remain very central here. Right, that I think. One thing the Chinese can do to assuage Trump is increase agricultural exports. Uh, and, and conversely, one thing they can do to create political pressure in Washington is to curtail <laughs> their imports of, of agriculture from the U.S. So I think it will remain a very politically sensitive sector in the relationship. Um, I would also mention something like critical minerals and rare earths is an area where we get a lot of client interest. We look at the energy transition and you look at the minerals that are required for, you know, um, not just, uh, you know, the, the, the IT sector, but for solar panels and for batteries and things like that. Uh, you know, China does have a strategic and dominant position in a lot of those minerals. Uh, and that's something that, that Trump has started to address. And I think Biden would have to focus on that as well. So I would say sectors like agriculture and, and critical minerals will remain very politically sensitive. Oil and gas is probably the one area where there is a lot of substitution. Right, that you know, this month, uh, you know, U.S. exports of crude to China were up. Two or three months ago, they were down quite a bit, and I think the Chinese will continue to diversify their supply in oil and gas. But I think in the ag sector and 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 um, the critical mineral sector, there will be a lot more political sensitivity. Mm. Mm. I guess moving on to OPEC um, and the U.S. policy towards the Middle East, um, particularly Iran. Um, what are the the two platforms policies? on that front. Yeah. So I think that's a great point, right? That when we look at the media coverage of the election, there's a lot of focus of the contrast between the two client, uh, energy, pardon me, the two candidates on climate uh, and less so on foreign policy. And I think that some of the foreign policy changes under Biden will be just, just as disruptive to energy markets and for OPEC uh, as this climate discussion, which is more of a slower moving, longer term story. Now, I think the issue really is going to come down to Iran, and it seems pretty clear that Biden will seek a renewed rapprochement uh, with the Iranians. He will try to position, uh, reposition the, the JCPOA agreement that was signed with Obama in 2014. that essentially lifted sanctions on Iranians' economy and oil sector in exchange for an Iranian freeze and, and dismantling of their uh, uranium enrichment program. Of course, Trump walked away from that deal, reimposed sanctions, uh, and yet the Iranian regime is still in place. I think Biden will try to go back to the Obama deal, perhaps not right away, but will open a dialogue and will probably lift the sanctions uh, in a way that will allow Iran to um, start exporting oil again. Uh, maybe not getting jumping right back to the you know four million barrels a day production they had three years ago. But you could see as 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 Iranians sort of move to slow down and 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 shut down their Iranian enrichment program, and and sort of reverse some of the um, escalations they've had under Trump, you could see Biden link that to you know increased waivers of of exports uh, for, by Asian buyers, India, Japan, China, etc. for Iranian crude. Now, if you're OPEC, especially Saudi Arabia, there's two problems here, right, Paul? One is you don't like the geopolitics of that because you you actually, if you're Saudi, you're very happy with Trump's containment strategy of Iran. And, and you know, Trump internationally probably is as close to the Saudis as any other country. You know, the UK, Canada, Japan, all the traditional allies, it's actually 
the Saudis he's worked very close with and the Emiratis as well. But the Saudis also won't like it from the market perspective, because as you know, um, in the aftermath of COVID and the price war with you know demand bumping around 92 million barrels a day, OPEC cut um, you know an unprecedentedly large amount of production uh, from 9.7 million barrels a day now down to 7.7.8. They want to unwind those cuts entering 2021 as demand recovers and gets back up to closer to 2019 levels. But it's going to be hard to rebalance the market if you have one, two, three million barrels of Iranian crude demand as well. So I think this Biden policy shift will be contentious for the Saudis and for OPEC, both on the geopolitical side and on the oil market side. And frankly, will be a big source of volatility and uncertainty for the oil price outlook uh, entering 2021. Yeah. Staying in that region, you've also got the Eastern Mediterranean with recent finds there, you know, particularly around geopolitical hotspots like uh, Cyprus, um, obviously um, Syria, uh, Lebanon. Um, you've had the Trump administration with you know strong relationships with Turkey um, and to some extent um, not competing with Russia. What do you see um, the Biden administration's policies there? So Biden hasn't said much about this. I, I do know some of the people working on these files for, for Biden who worked with Obama on these files as well in Eastern Med. And I think it's fair to say that Biden would make more of an effort to stabilize Libya, to de-escalate the Eastern Mediterranean position, and, and probably to support um, Cyprus, you know, the sort of Cypriot, uh, Greek Cypriot, Israeli, Egyptian uh, side of this versus kind of the, you know, somewhat aggressive behavior of the Turks and Russians uh, in Eastern Med, um, which is sort of a large a, a dynamic that's playing out in Libya and Syria and other places around the Middle East as well. So I think there would be an effort from Biden both to de-escalate the situation, uh, to push back more on Turkey and Russia than, than Trump has done. And potentially to work with it, work on that Eastern Med natural gas play as a way to create stability and economic opportunity for Lebanon, which desperately needs it, for Israel, for for both sides of, of Cyprus, uh, and for uh, for Egypt, uh, and and that that really hasn't been where Trump has been. In fact, Trump's policy really has been, you know, never mind this Eastern Mediterranean gas. Um, you know, there's plenty of U.S. LNG that can go to Turkey or to Greece or you know Bulgaria and southeastern Europe, Italy. So, um, you know, that, that's been a very different uh, strategic effort there. And, and obviously, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Erdogan and, and Putin, um, you know, his, his uh, uh, relations with them have been well documented. So I think it would be a very different shift from Biden. I'm not sure it would be his top priority. But at a time, we do have a real crisis in Lebanon. Uh, and we do always have, you know, focus on Israel. You always have focus on Egypt. The gas play there. Uh, and, and, you know, probably an effort to rebalance some of the behavior from Erdogan in particular and, and Putin to some extent as well. We'll probably see Biden take a very different role than, than Trump has done so far on that file. Yes. So I guess a policy is more characterized by using oil and gas policy to support regional uh, peace efforts or at least cooperation, um, setting up perhaps more of a conflict with OPEC itself and their economic aims. You touched on Russia there. Are there any specific policies the Biden administration has put out um, with regards to Russia and energy? I know there's decisions coming up around Nord Stream 2, um, the gas pipeline linking Russia and, and Europe. 
Um, what do we know there? Yeah, I think it, it's quite possible that um, Russian interference election will be a be a key story again, uh, and that Biden um, will be under very strong pressure, especially from progressive Democrats, to to not only uh, take your tougher tougher stance on Russia's interference in in U.S. politics, but also to investigate all the Trump uh, scan, so-called scandals and, and rumors and, and and reports that are out there um, that were around the impeachment. And that'll be tricky, right? Because I think that uh, yeah, the, the Democrats will want to stand up uh, to Russia on multiple fronts, um, but it's also not something where the the, the pathway to success will be any more clear for uh, for Biden than it was for Obama on Ukraine, right? That, you know, we, you can open that door, but what does it look like? You know, where, where are you going to be most effective in, in pushing back against Russia? So I think, I think at, at, on the headline level, there'll be more pressure uh, and a more confrontational approach probably from Biden uh, towards Russia than what we've seen under Trump. But substantively, where will there be real changes? Where does the U.S. have real leverage? That, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure there's a lot that the U.S. can do to sort of um, change Russia's policies in Eastern Med or in Libya or in Ukraine, certainly Belarus, the election interference. Um, so it could be it could be a bumpy picture between the U.S. and Russia. Uh, if Trump gets reelected, um, you know, again, there'll probably be a lot of uh, questions around election interference. Did the Russians help Trump? Um, but the but the policies of the sort of non-confrontational approach that Trump has taken, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, like for example, on on things like ballistic missiles, there's been a, a bit more of a confrontational uh, approach, um, and on things like Nord Stream, Nord Stream that you mentioned, there's been a bit more of a confrontational approach. But overall, um, you know, it, it hasn't been uh, a particularly confrontational approach from from Trump towards Russia, um, and I don't think that would change very much in the second term. So I guess the the other big area is back to um, climate-related policies. I think it's been quite clear that the oh, the Biden administration have said they'll rejoin the the Paris Agreement. Um, and I guess when you when you take a step back, you've got this a big contrast between the two potential administrations: the Trump administration, ultimately pro hydrocarbon, and the Biden administration um, supporting energy transition and um you know a shift to to electrons um i guess my question is how significant how consequential is this election um for global policy for global businesses or will market forces dictate the direction that economies take anyway and this will really impact i guess the us and and its energy transition in particular? I think it's very consequential. I think that uh, rejoining the Paris Agreement or, or preventing U.S. withdrawal, as, as Trump proposes, will be significant in, in a couple of respects. First of all, um, it's worth looking at the European Green New Deal, the green taxonomy, you know, and the, the steps they're taking to move towards net zero emissions by 2050. It's basically a playbook for what will happen in the U.S. And you think about that under Biden, even with some of the constraints in the Senate and the states that we talked about earlier, you would really then have, you know, the 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 bulk of the developed world moving towards fairly rapid decarbonization. And that would put a very different context around what China and Indian developing markets are doing. Um, 
that's one thing to consider. The second thing to consider is that in terms of timing, I think it's fair to say that um, the the energy transition is already being priced into the utilities and certainly the oil and gas upstream players uh, in terms of the market's you know future value of their assets, right? That the stranded asset discussion, the peak demand discussion is already sort of impacting investor appetite for the oil and gas sector, right? The sense that maybe the sector's best days are behind it. Maybe there'll be some oil demand growth for a few more years, but then we move to a peak. Uh, and, and maybe we just don't get back to the kind of you know lofty valuations and success the industry had, say, in 2011 or 2007 or you know previous times. And I think that would really be even more enhanced by a Biden administration, right? That I think the Biden administration coming to power would be seen as a tipping point towards more electric vehicles in the U.S., less gasoline demand, and and, and more of a global, a, a bumpy but relatively smoother global energy transition that would would help China and the other countries get on that pathway. Not saying that's necessarily the right assessment, but I think the markets would price that in, right? We already know that um, there's skepticism about oil and gas now under Trump, right? But uh, where the U.S. has not really been, at least at the federal level, pursuing aggressive decarbonization. Um, but I think if Biden wins, that will validate a lot of those in the market who are skeptical in the future of oil and gas. And that, that will affect you know the cost of capital and, and the overall size of the capital pool of the industry, uh, not just in the long term, but in the very short term as well. Yeah. I mean, these are pretty strong market forces. I found it interesting that despite the Trump administration's support for the coal industry, you know, more mines have been closed in the his first term than in Obama's, which I think you know points to that fact. Yeah, and that that's right. And I think that's why it's really interesting when you look at in the U.S. It's been cheap gas displacing coal. In China and Europe, it's been cheaper renewables. And, and subsidies, in some cases, uh, displacing coal. W- what's that going to look like in the transportation sector or petrochemicals or buildings, right? Other sectors, other greenhouse gas emitting sectors, right? And, you know, and, and, and in, in those cases, like heavy transportation, the, the cost of the alternative non-emitting technologies are much higher, right? You know, wind is very competitive with gas, but hydrogen is not very competitive with diesel right now. So how much will Biden lean into that? Europeans are leaning it quite a bit. But even there, you're talking about you know, 10, 20 years of transition. So you really have to go sector by sector to look at where the disruption is going to happen. And, and we've already seen it happen in the electric power sector, no question about it, as you suggested. Now we turn to petrochemicals, to manufacturing, supply chains, transportation, both passenger vehicle and, and heavier transportation. Aviation right now, I mean, there's not really a lot of alternative fuels or technologies for jets. But there are people working on them, right? Can Biden scale that? And, and if so, that's a you know a seven million barrel day market for jet fuel, at least it was before COVID. So the point is, I think the market will focus on on the U.S. Lead, at being a leader in those areas versus sort of laggard under Trump, and see that the U.S. working with Europe would probably tip the scale a little bit more to some of these other sectors decarbonizing on a faster timetable than they might under Trump. Yes, it's fascinating that. You know, compared to 10 years ago, these platforms are so divergent that the political risk um, inherent for energy and natural resource businesses, whether domestic or global, um, is is quite immense, depending on the outcome. Um, you know, and not just for businesses, but also for talent. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of people working in the fossil fuel industry. And I think Biden knows that those voters 
whether it's direct fossil fuel workers or the the large kind of uh, secondary and tertiary industries that are tied to the fossil fuel sector, including not just in Texas and Oklahoma, but but all over the map, have concerns about the nature of the transition. And they certainly support addressing climate change and environmental action, but they're also concerned with their jobs, their neighbors' jobs, or their, you know, the community's jobs. So Biden is working closely with unions. He's focused on a just transition. And, you know, it's a question of scale, right? There'll be a lot of workers displaced if his plan moves forward. And not all of them will be able to, to shift into, you know, solar panel installations or working for Tesla. There will be some of those jobs, but uh, some of those industries are not as labor intensive. Not all of them are as unionized. Some of them have much more automation than oil and gas. And so so that's going to be a real political challenge for him. But what we can say is that the base of the Democrat Party, I think, is less now, but the blue collar jobs that might have been sympathetic to a Keystone XL pipeline or, or coal mining in the past, and more now about progressive voters that want a transition, but are certainly attuned to the political and economic reality of taking care of the workers who might be left behind. I guess this might be unfair to ask, but does the Eurasia Group have a, um, a prediction for, for the upcoming election? We do. And we got the last one wrong, as did many others. So, so take that with a grain of salt. But but certainly, um, as of now, um, I, well, put it this way, I think really at the beginning of May, we had Trump as a 60% candidate. But since then, we've shifted to Biden at 65%. So we've, we've pulled... Uh, you know, Biden up 25% and, and Trump down 20%, lar- largely due to the, the COVID story, largely due to Biden's uh, fairly successful kind of low-key campaign he's been running and to the sort of uh, continued uh, struggles in the economy. And we'll see. I mean, that, that's not a, not a slam dunk, but but Biden, my, one of my colleagues told me yesterday that Biden has the biggest lead uh, of, a, of a challenger over incumbent uh, in the last hundred years of, of, of polling, so which is basically the entire history of polling. So, so he's uh, he's in a really good position, but uh, of course, there's still a long way to go, and 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 lots of room for uh, for changes, whether it's a vaccine or other uh, still play out. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating having you on, Robert. Um, you know, uh, I think it's uh, it's a worthy reminder that uh, it's not just uh, operational credit market risks and so forth that affect the energy and natural resources, but uh, you know, political risk. Um, you know, it has is going to be very consequential in the next few months. Um, you know, and really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Well, Paul, it was a fairly U.S. centric discussion, but uh, for this year and at this time of the year with the election coming up, I think it makes a lot of sense, and we can certainly talk about other parts of the world another time. Well, I, I look forward to it, and yeah, thanks again for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the HC Insider podcast. To find out more about HC, go to hcinsider.global, where there's more news and content focused on the commodities markets.